What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Neil Bascom is a national award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of a number of books all non-fiction narratives all focused on inspiring stories of adventure or achievement He has a new book out titled The Grand Escape, The Greatest Prison Breakout of the 20th Century. On this episode, Neil dives deep on his creative process and how he's been able to cultivate success. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable and built for running. Also with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head over to 10,000.cc to check out their gear and use discount code WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. That's 10,000.cc and use discount code WGYT. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest Noah Olson turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested, there's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to purespectrumcbd.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at purespectrumcbd.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. 
Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Neil, welcome to What Got You There. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, no, of course. Exciting time for you. Uh, I know your newest release, The Grand Escape, the greatest prison breakout of the 20th century. What's it like for you when you release a new book? Well, it's it's exciting in the sense that, you know, generally these books take me two to three years to research and write. And a great deal of that time, of course, is, is spent, uh, you know, uh, buried in, uh, in research, uh, interviewing people um, and, and spending a lot of time in libraries and, and by myself. And so when I'm actually out releasing a book and out on tour, it's sort of like coming out from the bunker, which is <laughs> nice. I get to talk to people and, uh, and uh, you know, talk about the book. And it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, so I enjoy when the books release and, you know, I spend a month, two months, uh, publicizing and then, then it's back to the bunker. No, I always appreciate people who have to put so much effort, energy, and time into their craft. And you mentioned the two to three year period, and we're really going to dive a lot into your creative process, some of the interviews you do, how you conduct your research, but let's dive into your childhood a little bit. I, I want to know what it was like, the origin story for you. So what's a, a sentence your family or close friends would have used to describe you as a child? A sentence to describe me as a child, I would say that uh, I was uh, introverted. I read a lot and I played, I played a lot of hockey. So those were my sort of, um, as, a, as a child, my interests, you know, um, I was either reading or on the ice rink. And, uh, and you know, I think those, those characteristics sort of play themselves through as an adult. I, I still do spend a lot of time uh, reading and, and, but also on the, on the, on the ice rink and, and the hockey end of things It's you know, sport taught me a great deal about, uh, perseverance and, uh, um, what it takes to sort of work together with a team to, to create something. And, and a book is both a process that's an individual one, but also one that sort of takes a team with your publisher and others to, to make stuff happen. So did you think you were going to be the next Wayne Gretzky or were you hoping to be a New York times bestselling author like you are? <laughs> I had no, uh, misconception that I would be the, the next, uh, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I was, uh, I was a, uh, probably a, a little bit better than decent player. Uh, but, um, no, the NHL was not in my future. I probably in about eighth grade knew that I wanted to be a writer, uh, an author, and it's something that, that, uh, I've pursued ever since. Oh, that's fascinating. So say there's a young listener today, maybe around that, that eighth, ninth grade time frame. they're really interested in writing anything you would recommend that you thought really, uh, had benefits for yourself growing up. Well, I think just, you know, again, this is probably a bit of a cliche, but, you know, just reading um, as, as much as you can, but reading a wide variety of things. So not only fiction and not only just fantasy fiction or realistic fiction, but all kinds of different kinds of, of novels. Similarly, um, also nonfiction. There's just so much good nonfiction, both history, which I write, 
but also uh, memoirs. Uh, the Hate You Give, uh, my daughter just read, and she she absolutely loved it, um, and other stories like that. So I just read a wide variety and, you know, write. Just keep a journal. Um, write what your thoughts, what your day was. Um, you know, writing is a is a process of like anything else. You know, of, of doing uh, consistently. Uh, you know, daily, and you just improve uh, with effort. There's no you know huge leap that happens. It's just uh, virtue of the fact of doing it often, like most skills. Yeah, no, put, putting in the hours is going to be essential. I mean, you mentioned you wanted to be a writer for a number of years. What did you first do after college? Because I know you kind of had a little bit of an interesting career path to lead you to where you are. So I, you know, I went to Miami University in, in Oxford and during my summer of my junior year, um, I lived in Luxembourg um, where Miami had a campus. And then that summer, I got a job working as basically a researcher at a London magazine called Euromoney. And uh, that was fun. It was my first journalism job, although I was basically just making phone calls and, and doing spreadsheets. And uh, they hired me after college. So I moved to London right after school ended uh, and worked as a journalist for Euromoney, uh, you know, traveling and covering uh, political and economic scenes across Europe and elsewhere. And and then uh, then got a job writing in in Ireland for 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 a bit of time, and so that was for me. You know, journalism was a great experience not only as to learn the sort of craft of writing, but also the craft of research, interviewing people. Uh, but I always knew that I wanted to stick to books. I mean, I found that journalism, although wonderful, uh, was the the time frame was much shorter, and I wanted to sort of dive deep into projects uh, long-term, which is what books is. So what made you take that that big leap and transition full-time into writing then? Well, I was, uh, you know, I took from journalism after after Ireland. I, I moved back to the, um, to the U.S. I moved to New York. I became a book editor uh, at St. Martin's Press. And did that for four years. Again, that was that was an incredible experience. Learning how to, you know, what it, what it takes to to not only write a book but to publish a book. You know, all the, the people involved in in the process, and you know what makes a good book and what doesn't. That was instrumental. And after that, I, I spent another year in Paris working as a as a journalist and also writing a very bad um, uh, uh, novel very bad novel called, uh, gosh, what was it called? Something like chasing blue. <laughs> it was awful. But again, it was, uh, you know, again, there's just this just trying things, writing all the time. Um, I wrote three or four really bad novels before I, uh, decided to write actually nonfiction full time. <laughs> um, which, uh, I did almost as soon as I came back from Paris, I wrote my great American novel. I put it in the drawer and, uh, and found my sort of true calling writing narrative nonfiction. Do you think you derived a lot of your inspiration from living overseas? Well, I certainly uh, derived a lot of my interest in in these, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, international stories. You know, most narrative nonfiction writers write about American topics, you know, uh, American troops, uh, American wars, American uh, survival stories. Most of my books are about international themes, international stories from, uh, you know, 
uh, a mutiny on the Black Sea and in Red Mutiny to, you know, Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile to the story about uh, the Grand Escape, uh, this World War One story, which is focuses mostly on British and uh, Commonwealth uh, individuals. Yeah, I'd really like to dive into the book right now. I mean, can you give for the listeners who haven't had a chance to pick it up just uh, some brief background into, into first how you developed the idea to write this and then the actual plot of the book? Sure. So I, I came to the story uh, through reading about uh, MI9, which is the British Escape and Evasion Service. And I was reading a history of that. And there was this little vignette, which is where I get a lot of my ideas. You know, you read these sort of broad histories. And then in those broad histories, you see this small story. Um, well, there in this book about MI9, uh, this World War II uh, evasion service, which saved, you know, 30, 35,000 lives in, in the war, was this tiny story about Holtzman and um, about this escape in World War One, as really the sort of genesis of MI9. You know, you had these escapees. Um, and after the war, they went on to found uh, MI9 and teach the sort of art of escape. And that, to me, was fascinating. And I just wanted to sort of know what that Foundation Genesis story was about, which is the story about Holtzman and uh, this camp, which was kind of the Alcatraz of Germany at the time. And the sort of most troublesome, most uh, escape-prone prisoners uh, allied and British and ultimately American prisoners were sent to this one camp uh, that was supposed to be inescapable. And the Grand Escape uh, is the story about how they made it out of there. Yeah, really fascinating read. I mean, a lot of the work you've done in the past is just tremendous, uncovering some some stories throughout history that, that are really gripping, really detailed. That detail is something I really want to uncover. And you get this idea about what you want to write about. What is even the first step for you in, in uncovering one of these stories and starting to write about it? Well, the first step is, is, is you know, finding the stories, right? Um, finding a topic that really enthralls you and that for me, the sort of test is kind of twofold. Uh, the first is, you know, does the story have something important to say? You know, is there a theme that I want to sort of talk about? And with The Grand Escape, it's, that's largely about, you know, why people want to be free, what they'll do to, to sort of uh, pursue that. And then the second question I, I have is, you know, is there something new I can offer? Is there something... Um, you know, is this going to be a regurgitation of, of a story that, you know, 10 other people have told? Or is there something fresh uh, research-wise or approach-wise that I can tell? And for this story about the World War I escape, I mean, very few people had written about it, so that was easy. But the process of, I knew that there was a lot of uh, primary, firsthand memoirs and letters out there that if I could gather together, I could write a book, uh, you know, that had never been done before. And, and so those are the two questions I asked him for this book. That was that was sort of my launch pad. Yeah, you mentioned not a lot has been written on this topic and, and the memoirs you mentioned. And I'm assuming that a lot of this was detective work on your end. I mean, a lot of these personal conversations you must have had. How difficult is it when writing a book like this? Well, this one was particularly difficult simply by virtue of the fact that it was 100 years ago, right? So there was no one to interview. Uh, and interviews, of course, are are instrumental and key in a lot of these stories because you really can hear firsthand what people thought and feared and 
what was what they did on a day by day basis. But that wasn't going to be the case here, and so I decided that the best way was to go to the families, uh, the granddaughters, the grandsons, the cousins, the nephews, uh, whoever I could find, um, and see if they'd kept things uh, over the years. You know, sort of family treasures, and you know, this is a hunt that it often ends up, you know, for every nine times you, you go to somebody, you know, maybe it's the 10th that one finally comes through, but it was pretty remarkable. I started to go to these families and, and the, the number of these uh, prisoner families that had kept material was, was unbelievable um, from the unpublished memoirs to the letters, to the shaving brushes where they hid, you know, uh, timetables. Uh, that the prisoners had. I mean, they just kept an enormous amount of material, which made this book, um, you know, wonderful to write and was able to to really sort of tell the story of who these people were. Um, and that was, like you said, I mean, it was, it was a lot of detective work. I mean, I can only imagine some of the conversations you had with family members. Is is there one that really stands out that may, might have sent some uh, chills down your spine in, in hearing some of the stories? Well, I think the one that sort of, you know, was most moving to me was uh, Lori Bennett, who was the actually the daughter of James Bennett, who was one of the 10 men who escaped from Holtzmann and got some freedom. But he was also uh, one of these MI9 lecturers and uh, who started the Escape and Evasion Service in World War II. And, you know, I met Lori south of, of London and you know, she told me she had no idea, you know, really much of what her father had done during uh, World War II, anything about MI9. He had never said a word. And it wasn't until we started going through his trunks and we started finding things that really began to get a really clue on who he was. And that was really sort of chilling and moving both for Lori and for me. And, you know, so much of, of the story of the Grand Escapes uh, James Bennett's story is really the sort of lifeblood of it in many ways. And so from, you know, the handwritten notes that he wrote to telling about how he was shot down over the North Sea, um, how he was actually captured by a German U-boat, um, you know, and having this, seeing this, you know, in his own handwriting, you know, you can almost see where he sort of pauses and is gathering his thoughts or is is sort of emotionally moved by things you can actually see in, in, in the handwritten memoir. Yeah. I mean, the words you use are rather gripping, but one of my favorite things about the book is all of the photos. I know there's a photo of, uh, Jim Bennett in there, and there's a lot of artifacts and things like that, which really make the, makes the reader just feel so much more in touch and in tune with your story. So I'm really glad you did that for this book. Yeah, no, I think the, you know, having the photographs and having the, the, the maps and and everything else really helps bring it to life. You know, of course, you hope that the writing is enough for that. But um, you know, it always helps to be able to see the images of and photographs of of, of these men, what they look like specifically. You know, what the camp looked like, um, even in black and white. You know, really helps bring it to into readers' eyes, and that's what I'm trying to do uh, in all these books. What do you think was the most impressive part about this story for the men who escaped? Well, the, I think the most impressive part of the story is that 
the, the tunnel itself. I mean, you know, this was 150 yards uh, underground that they had to dig. They had to dig about a foot a day. Um, it was horrifying work. You know, this, this tunnel, it was, it was almost no larger than, than the human form. They, you know, you couldn't raise yourself up on your elbows. That's how tight it was. There were frequent cave-ins. Um, the air was stale. Um, it was horrifying claustrophobic, uh, work and their ability to do that day after day after day is, is, is truly remarkable. It better not be claustrophobic in that environment. I mean, I certainly don't want to ruin the book at all, but something that really intrigued me and I was fascinated by was what these men did right after they did, uh, they actually did escape. What they end up doing after that? Well, what, once they return to freedom, yep. is that your question? I mean, they got right back in the air. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, I mean, one of the main motivations, of course, of, of escaping um, was not only to be free, but, but also to get back into the war. Um, they, you know, almost to an individual felt like they, uh, had let down their, their comrades, their fellow pilots, their fellow soldiers by being captured. And so their impetus to escape was, was in part to, to get back to their squadrons and get back to their companies. Um, so they, they could continue the war. And, you know, you have an individual like Cecil Blaine, who was uh, the youngest pilot in his squadron. Uh, he was one of the leaders of the escape at Holtzminden. Uh, he does everything in his power to, to get home and to get back to his squadron. Uh, he does successfully, amazingly, and then dies, uh, you know, a few months later in an airplane crash. I mean, it's just an absolute tragedy. Uh, but the man was a, was, was a pure inspiration as well. Yeah. You mentioned Cecil dying in the airplane. The statistic I was just absolutely blown away by was the number of flying hours for the average lifespan of one of these guys. Do you remember the statistic? Yeah. So the average lifespan, uh, for these pilots survival rate was 17 hours in the, in the air. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just, I mean, the, uh, the burn rate, the attrition rate, um, was just, uh, just atrocious. I mean, uh, one quarter of these pilots died in training alone. And then once they're out of training, their average lifespan was 17 hours. So, you know, most of them were dying, uh, and those that weren't dying were, were generally shot down and captured, uh, and spent the, the, the better portion of the, of the war in these camps. And, uh, that's why I found it, you know, this story so fascinating is he's trying to understand these pilots like David Gray, who's kind of the hero of the story, you know, who is an army engineer and decides he wants to be a pilot, and, like what it takes to be, uh, to be one of these first Royal Flying Corps airmen, you know, in these planes that are basically wood cloth and piano wire strung together, um, they were extremely brave um, and, you know, some would say foolish to even get in the air. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't want to uncover too much of the book. I'm sure the, the listeners are certainly eager to go pick this up now, but I'm curious about your actual writing process. I know we've mentioned the the research in the two to three years. So when you're mapping out writing a detailed book like this, how, do you break it up into chunks? How do you even begin this whole process once you start the research? Well, you know, for me, it's, you know, I, I do all the research first. Um, and 
I generally have an idea when I'm doing the research, sort of what the what the flow of the of the book is, what the story is. Of course, this is history, so it's you know it's not like I'm a novelist who's like I can't figure out what the ending is. I mean, that's not the case, right? Um, I know what the beginning is. I know what the end is, uh, and the question is, you know, whose story do I follow? Um, how much history do I put in versus what the actual narrative is? Um, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an art in some senses, uh, but it's also, you know, very much a research driven art. So I'm trying to, you know, you choose individuals based on, on who you're going to follow based on who you have the most, uh, material on. So, you know, David Gray, I had a great deal of, of an understanding of who he was from memoirs and from the, uh, the British archives. So I chose him, uh, similarly, James Bennett, uh, who I, you know, Lori, his daughter gave me a tremendous amount of material. So I knew that I would focus on them and a few others, uh, and then weave in the German end of things. And then that's, then it's a question of, you know, how do you tell each of these storylines, uh, and weave them together? So then I'm not just telling a story about David Gray in a chapter and then a story about Bennett, but really sort of making readers feel novelistically that like they're following the course of these people's lives um, in a way that, that they're almost, that the reader feels like they're almost in their skin, uh, seeing what they see and hearing what they hear. And that's my intention. Um, and that's why the, the research has to be so exhaustive. Because of course I can't make anything up. So if the if if I say it's raining, I have you know proof that it rained that day. If I say that you know this is what these two individuals said to each other, then I need that from a memoir or from a letter or from some other history that has that. Yeah, no, your ability to weave is what makes you a great writer. And I know a lot of the listeners of the show really wanted to get deep in terms of your actual process. So when you're doing the research, you come across a great story, a memoir, things like that. I mean, are you writing these down on note cards? Do you have a specific computer program you use to categorize the, these things? So I used to just photocopy everything um, and just have an enormous, uh, you know, uh, file cabinet full of material. Yeah. How, I mean, but, how many thousands you know, of pages must you have had then? <laughs> uh, my, my wife is all, I used to, my wine cellar is basically a, uh, a, you know, full of <laughs> dilapidated boxes spilling out with paper. So I decided that that would, was, was not going to carry on. And I actually, you know, for instance, if I if I read a book um, about you know the the Royal Flying Corps uh, that I'm going to use to tell you know a couple paragraphs about what the history of the Royal Flying Corps, you know, I'll take photographs of the pages with my phone, um, and then I'll take notes saying you know this is what's on these pages, and I'll put that in an Excel spreadsheet. If I'm in an archive and in Germany and I find out about um, you know the layout of the Holtzman and Camp. Uh, I'll take photographs of that in the archive and then I'll, I'll put that, you know, that comes from this archive and this is in the archive about the security defenses. Uh, similarly, if I'm writing about uh, David Gray and I want to write about his time in India and I go to the British library and find out about his service in India for the British Indian army photographs of that, that too goes into a file folder and then also goes into a big, 
Excel spreadsheet saying, okay, this is where I have this information about his British India Army experience. And that spreadsheet becomes the kind of, it's even called the master list of all the research I have from, you know, the 100 to 150 books I read um, to the, you know, five to 10,000 pages of archival material to uh, interviews to, um, to personal archives. And all that information is, is, is documented and referenced. And so I know exactly where it is and on what page I can find about, you know, uh, this individual or, or, or that bit of history. And then when I, you know, after a couple of years of, you know, it's not just about collecting the research. It's about, you know, making this master list of all this information so that when I decide, you know what, I think I have everything, then I read this, you know, 5,000 line Excel sheet and see like what I have, what the sort of through lines are, what the story is. And from that master list, I kind of create my uh, chapter by chapter breakdown. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, so what's the culmination like of developing this 5,000 line Excel sheet? So how long does it take to get to that point to the when you're actually writing out the actual story? So it depends on how difficult the research is, of course, you know, how elusive it is to find stuff. Um, you know, for Grand Escape, uh, this story, although it was a lot of detective work to find the families, once I found them, I it was really just just hauling it in and taking photographs of everything. Um, so the research process, I simultaneously do the research and I'm documenting in this master list. So it's kind of happening hand in hand. And that process generally takes, you know, let's say an average of, of 16 to 18 months to do that research, uh, to get everything together. And, you know, and I even have, you know, I even have assistants who work in, you know, England and Germany and elsewhere for me, uh, doing the sort of first collection of material. So, you know, it's a team effort in that respect. If I didn't have that staff, it'd probably be, you know, two to three years to collect all that information. But fortunately, I have some pretty great people, um, you know, around the world to help. Got you. So when you're going to sit down and write, are you a pretty routine person? I mean, is it, hey, 6 a.m. every single day, I've got my coffee and I'm writing, or are you kind of sporadic? You know, I, it's, it's a job. I mean, it's a job I love, but I, I to, to make it so that I'm not this, you know, I have a family, I have children, so I can't be that 23 year old. I used to be, you know, writing from seven at night till, you know, three in the morning. I try to work during the day, um, you know, get everyone, get, get everyone off and away in the mornings and, I'm sitting down uh, at 9 a.m., um, first probably at a coffee shop, and just looking at what I have to write that day, what the research is I have, and then I go into my office uh, here in Seattle where I have this kind of bank of screens now. I kind of look like a stockbroker, <laughs> and you know I'll have 10 to 12 documents open, um, You know whether it's archival or a book or interviews. And I have that in front of me and I read all that. And then I, you know, sort of put it all in my head and, and begin writing um, from that. And so I generally, 
if I was to sort of break it down, I probably am effective for about an hour. Now, probably two hours a day, I'm really effective <laughs> where I'm actually writing. Um, and I probably can, in that two hours, write a thousand words. But uh, the getting that two hours is, is an eight hour process. I'm intrigued by the if verbiage. You, yeah, no, it certainly does. The verbiage you use that it's a job. So do you ever encounter writer's block or, or is it, nope, this is a job every single day. I just start writing and I'm going to write as much as I can. Yeah. I mean, I generally have an idea that I want to write, you know, uh, this section that day, uh, whether it's 600 words or a thousand words or, you know, I, I, after about a thousand words, my quality begins to, uh, uh, decline fairly precipitously. So, you know, I don't know what that says about my mental brain power, but (laughs) anyway, um, I do not believe in brain in uh, writer's block. Um, I just, I don't, maybe it's because I haven't really experienced it and because I'm writing nonfiction. So, you know, I have a lot of sort of jumping off material that I can use. If I was just crafting you know, a scene out of whole cloth, it might be a, a more difficult and perhaps I can see getting stuck. But from my point of view, you know, although I consider my writing, you know, every bit as uh, artistic as, as a novelist, I just have launching off points that, that a novelist doesn't. You know, I have a description that somebody's written, you know, that I can um, use as a, as a jumping off point. Or just quote it <laughs> if it's so good that I'm like, you know what? That's probably better than I can do. That is delicious. That is a delicious way of saying it. I'm just going to quote it. Um, I have that power as a nonfiction author uh, that a novelist doesn't. I mean, I'd love tapping into the art of your inner creative. And it, it was funny. You mentioned when you were 23, you might be writing in the middle of the night at all hours. Do you think that actually is your most creative time of the day? No. I think my most creative time of the day is uh, when I'm kind of in the zone and it's just a question of getting there. And that's, you know, a question of really feeling like I fundamentally know uh, the story. I know the research. I've sort of let it stew in my brain for an hour or two. And, you know, I've shuffled off a couple lines and deleted them and then you know, and then I just sort of push through and that, which is why I say, you know, in that two, two hours where I'm actually physically, the words are coming out being on the page versus the, the sort of eight hours or 10 hours where I'm actually just sitting at the desk, um, looking at research, fumbling around. So I think those two hours are where the inspiration is. And I don't think it matters what time of day it is. I sometimes can do that at night um, if everyone's away or I'm behind or I decide to go to, you know, a cabin in the woods for a week. Like I can write, you know, um, at any time. Uh, But it's for me, I know I'm rambling a bit, but for me, it's uh, it's really getting to that point where the words start to flow. And that's just a sort of inescapable preparation time. I mean, it's funny because this is something you do all the time and, and you just get into this element. So you mentioned you're rambling. This is actually what I and the, and the listeners love to hear and uncover because it's these little details that someone like yourself might do that really helps you tap into your genius. And you mentioned your ability to get into the zone. 
Is that a clear and distinct different spot you're in when you're doing some great writing? It is. Absolutely. I, you can feel it. I, I certainly can feel it. Um, it's, it's fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, I talk about that six hours versus two hours of, of, of actually writing, you know, that six hours is painful, right? It's, it's a lot of staring at the, you know, computer screen or staring at the empty notebook and, uh, that's not the right way I want to start or, you know, and then you find that you're actually flowing and writing and maybe in, you know, a span of 30 minutes, you'll write 400 really good words and you're, you're, you're pretty jazzed up, <clears throat> but you know that that, you know, there's a sort of set limit where, you know, it, my brain just can't function at that high level for, for too long before it gets exhausted. Um, and so, you know, there's probably, I probably have three sections of 40 minutes of writing that is really effective. And then the, the rest of the time is, is, is just fumbling around in the dark. <laughs> I mean, the zone or flow states, it's, it's something that's come up a lot on this podcast. We've had on sports psychologists and some other people who study flow in the zone specifically. Are you able to tap into that pretty regularly? Well, I think that, you know, just, I was going to say further to that, you know, there's definitely a period of time where, you know, the first third of a book is really hard to write. Maybe the first half is even really hard to write because not only are you having to shoehorn in a lot of history and a lot of story and it's complicated, um, you know, the, your muscle writing is just n not toned enough because again, I spend 18 months not writing at all. And then a year almost writing exclusively. And so when I, when I'm, when I'm actually writing, um, and I get to that halfway point of the book or even a little further, then I'm, and I'm doing it every day. And, you know, I stopped talking to my family and my parents are calling asking where I am and, you know, all that's happening. And I'm just like, I'm just in the zone, but not just in the zone on a 40 minute basis. I'm like day after day. I just, it's just coming. It's just like, it's easy. Um, and that is, is, you know, pure joy, but, but there's no way to get to that without all the, as I said, the rambling in the dark and the brutal moments and the days that you don't feel like you do anything. Uh, even if you write 800 words, you know, you're still like, uh, I don't think those are very good. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of back and forth on it. Oh my God. This is absolutely fascinating. So during these times when you're in the zone, your entire life, you're almost a different person. You're, you're kind of fully entrenched in it. Yeah, I have very, I have very, uh, um, you know, my, my wife says it all the time. It's like when I, you know, it takes me two or three hours to sort of come out of my head. So if we have something that evening or, you know, it takes me a while to, to I call it sort of, you know, reemerge, <laughs> you know, I'm just so in my internal state that, it's, you know, it's an adjustment and, you know, my family knows that when I'm sort of deep into writing something that I just, I'm in a different sort of mental space 
Um, I'm not terribly uh, connected to other people in those moments because I'm so connected to sort of what I'm doing on a work basis. But again, that's, you know, that's a short period of time, um, short period, you know, three months, four months where I'm actually in that sort of place. Yeah. You mentioned where you almost have to reemerge during that time. Are you actually hoping you don't fully reemerge because it might take you away from your genius with your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, you know, the, one of the issues is that I'm, I often will write all the way till, you know, the last chapter and then I'll still have the epilogue, but I'll be so sort of exhausted from months and months of writing that I'll be like, Oh, I'll just finish the epilogue, you know, in a few weeks time. And then I actually get to actually having to write that epilogue and it's so hard because I'm now outside of my, as you call it a zone or outside the flow. And, uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful space to be in and, you know, it's the most effective I am. Yeah, no, it sounds painful jumping back on that horse and then having to write that epilogue. Once you finish a book, how soon after uh, are you jumping into a new story, uh, your next bit of research, or do you kind of have your next few books planned? I generally, hopefully, have my next book planned while I'm writing my current one. And, you know, sometimes I'll even be already doing the research because it really is two different parts of your brain. The, there's the writing part of your brain and and then the research part. And, you know, the research is a very sort of organized, you know, uh, I always forget the which one's the left brain, which one's the right brain, but one's the left and one's the right. <laughs> so um, the research and the writing, they're just on different parts. And so I can, I can spend an hour a day you know, um, doing, orchestrating the research for my next book, getting things together, getting people sort of on board to start looking so that when I'm done writing my present book that I'm, you know, a step ahead on the research on the next one. But that's only been recently that I've been able to do that now that I've, you know, I've been doing this for full time for almost 20 years. So, I've become better at it by virtue of just repetition, I think. So after your two-month press tour promoting the new book, how soon after are you like fully entrenched into your next project? So I've been, um, for presently, I'm, you know, uh, on tour for <clears throat> Grand Escape. And I was actually halfway done writing my next book when I started to go on tour. Um, and uh, I'll, as soon as I'm done and as soon as I can thread together more than one day at a time, uh, I'll start, uh, writing again for that one. Because what you have to understand is that a book, you know, I'll grand escape. I finished, uh, over a year ago. Um, but the process of, of, you know, the publisher editing it and getting the marketing ready and printing it, and getting it into stores is a, is a year long process. Okay. I mean, you, you mentioned your love for reading from an early age, which authors have had the greatest impact on you? I think for what I do, um, in terms of narrative nonfiction, you know, I think, uh, you know, Tom Wolf is probably one of my bigger heroes. Um, just his capacity to engage readers, 
to move beyond just sort of dry recitation of facts uh, to, you know, the kind of research that he did to create uh, the books that he did um, to the kind of pirate, not that I use that kind of pyrotechnics in terms of language that, that he did, but, but understanding that, you know, that you can be a little looser with your writing. Um, you don't need to necessarily follow the, the standard rules every second of the day. Um, he's probably one of my uh, biggest uh, inspirations as a, as a writer, for sure. Oh, very interesting. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation for me hearing about you, your book. I loved how deep we got to go on the creative process. We'll link the listeners up with you in a second. But one final question, you mentioned the wine cellar. After you release the book, are you going down to the wine cellar? What's a bottle you're going to open? <laughs> uh, well, I've, yeah, I've become less a, uh, a wine man than I am a uh, Japanese whiskey. So I, uh, I have a bottle of uh, Hibiki. Um, ready and waiting when I finish faster, but I'll probably, uh, I'll probably dive into it before that happens. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Neil, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Where can the listeners best find you stay connected with you and, and learn all about the things you're up to? Sure. They can go to my website, uh, uh neilbascom.com, N-E-A-L-B-A-S-C-O-M-B.com, where they can find my books on Amazon or any of the local bookstores. Great. Well, we're going to have all that linked up in the show notes. But Neil, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate it. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head over to 10,000.cc to check out their gear and use discount code WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. That's 10,000.cc and use discount code WGYT. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. 
For the what got you there listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.